Good morning. I want to welcome those who are visiting with us again this morning. Uh, We're glad to have you. Let us pray before we get into our passage this morning. Father in heaven, you are gracious and you are good. For you have sent forth your Son in the flesh to reveal yourself to us. For as we will see in this text, you are inaccessible except through Jesus Christ. That you are invisible and it is in Christ Jesus that we see you. And so, Father, we ask that you would help us to see you in the Scriptures this morning. That you would spur us on to do good works that we're called to do as your church. For the sake of Christ and His kingdom. For it's in His name we pray. Amen. We are wrapping up 1 Timothy this morning. Uh, I looked at the passage several times this week and I looked, wow, that's going to be a little bit daunting if you look at all the content that's in verses 11 through 21. Um, But I will do my best to try to wrap this up for you, try to put a bow on this package of what we call 1 Timothy. Um, If you recall when we started 1 Timothy, we talked repeatedly about Paul's reason for writing this book. And it's in chapter 3. Paul knew he would be delayed to come to that church at Ephesus, those house churches at Ephesus. And he told Timothy, I'm writing to you that you may know how one ought to conduct themselves in the household of God, which is the pillar and buttress of truth. So there's two things to see in that instruction from Paul to Timothy. That there is a conduct that Christians are to have. And that conduct is rooted and grounded in the Word of God. That is what we are a pillar of. We lift up the Word of God. That is what it means to be a buttress to support through the Word of God. And it's interesting in 1 Timothy, if you read it through in its totality, I often do that as I'm going through a book, bringing you messages regularly, is to read through that entire book that we're actually studying. It helps to put everything in context. Reading through it this week, I noticed something very interesting. There are bookends in Timothy. In 1 Timothy, Paul tells Timothy at the end of chapter 1, wage the good warfare. Now that doesn't really sound Christian, does it? Warfare. And then in our passage here, he says fight the good fight. That's in military terms. Again, we don't think about Christianity in those terms, do we? We think of love. We think of kindness. We think of gentleness. All those things are true. But brothers and sisters, there is a complacency in the church today. There's an apathy in the church today. There's atrophy. We are not exercising our spiritual muscles. It's called discipleship. We look around everything in this world and we see good. Most of us here are wealthy compared to other people in the world. 
Most of us here live a comfortable life. You're not persecuted for your faith. And so we have this complacency and apathy. If everything in the world is okay, then the church must be okay. But how many people are coming to Christ? How many people are we making disciples of? How many are being matured as disciples in the faith? Our vision that the session is putting together is about making and maturing disciples. You're going to hear more about it in the weeks and months to come. I've already made some comments about that in the past. But this session has approved a team of people that will be across this congregation to come together and work through a process through phases of looking at everything that we do to say, are we making and maturing disciples? Are we exercising our spiritual muscles to grow in maturity in the faith? So that we will have boldness. We will have confidence. We will go out and wage good warfare, spiritual warfare, to rescue souls out of darkness. To bring them into light. To bring salvation to the world. That's sermon number one. As I was preparing for this message, I happened to think of, of warfare. I had, there was a family here, many of you will know, the Craven family. Um, they left some time ago. But I married his son, Tyler. Tyler was a Marine. And so I thought about him this week and I thought about Marines in terms of this message that we are looking at, this passage we're looking at today. Marines are first responders. You know that. They're the first to go into battle. If you go to their website, the first thing you'll see in bold print, constant amidst the uncertainty. Constant against, amidst the uncertainty. Can we say that about our own personal Christianity? Can we say that as a church? Are we constant amidst the uncertainty? There is uncertainty in the world, brothers and sisters. There is no hope in the world. They are running after the wind. They are grasping at the wind. Grasping at straws. New innovations and ideas of this is what will actually make me happy. This is what will make me content. Remember last week's message is contentment. The Marines have a purpose. And their statement is also available if you want to look at online. And I want to read it to you and I want you to think in terms of substitute in yourself as a Christian. Substitute in Jesus Christ as the one that we respond to in authority over us. This is their purpose. The Marine Corps' mission reflects the Marines' purpose. Our nation is that purpose. In our world, in ourselves, and in the way we are to, 
in, the, in our way, the conflicts, the challenges, the obstacles that must be fought confidently and defeated convincingly for our nation to prevail. These looming battles come in many forms and occur on many fronts, but each comes down to a critical choice to demand victory or accept defeat, to pull together or fall apart, to give in or cave in. It is a decision each Marine conveys to our nation with each battle. I think of that in terms of Christianity. Is our purpose to go along our way to meet other people in conflict and challenges and obstacles? Do we look to defeat convincingly on behalf of the Lord Jesus Christ sin in the world through the gospel? Do we make the critical choice to choose victory in Christ Jesus and defeat Satan and his legions? Are we going to give in, cave in, or have the courage to press on? The Marines have one motto, Semper Fi, always faithful. That needs to be us. To be raised from the dead so that we would know with confidence that we too have eternal life. To ascend into heaven to know that we will one day be in His presence. All that is the battle that is waging and going on right now. The victory has been won, but the battle still wages on. Paul commanded Timothy and entrusted this charge to him. Jesus is our commander-in-chief. The Apostle Paul writing this letter, you can think of him as a field general. Timothy is an officer. Today it would be elders and deacons as officers, leaders of the church. But all of us are soldiers. All of us. At the very beginning of this text, it talks about Timothy personally, but it doesn't refer to him by name. He refers to Timothy as, O man of God. This is quite an outstanding title to give to Timothy. But it's true of each and every one of us. We are a man of God or a woman of God. But what it represents in Scripture in the Old Testament were these types of men. Moses was called a man of God. Samuel was called a man of God. David was called a man of God. Elijah and Elisha were called a man of God. Now many of us sitting here might be thinking, well, I'm not them. Oh yeah, you are. If you've been bought and purchased and redeemed by the blood of Christ, you're a child of God. And you're to grow into a man or woman of God. Discipleship. This passage will get into that. Marines don't call themselves by their rank. They don't call themselves privates or corporals. 
sergeants, you'll ask someone, what are you? They'll say, I'm a Marine. Our response should be, I'm a Christian. I'm not at some higher level than someone else. I'm a Christian. You're a Christian. Well, as we go through this text, I want to bring out some things, hopefully that will be meaningful to you and that you can utilize as you live out the Christian faith this next week. If you are familiar with Sesame Street, this week's message is brought to you by the letter I. (laughs) As we work through this, look, I started with identity. I had to have eyes all the rest of the way. So hopefully it'll work out for you here. So as we work through this, I'll try to point out identity, immediacy, engagement, intensity, inspiration, invincibility, and impact. Our identity. We are men and women of God. We are Christians. That's our identity. Not in anything else in this world. It is in Christ Jesus. We have that through our redemption. But the next thing that Paul gets into with Timothy is immediacy, an urgency, a call, a charge. He says to Timothy that you are to flee these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. There's an immediacy to this. We don't become Christians, become saved, and then sit around and lounge. We should pursue good. We should flee evil. There's an immediacy to it. There's an ethical charge to this. Flee evil. Do good. The evil that we're to flee, discontent, foolish desires, false doctrine, greed, those things that we talked about last week, we're to flee those things. We're not to get entangled in those things. It doesn't mean that we don't speak the truth and love into those things, but we don't make it a practice. In Jude's epistle that's very short, one chapter, it talks about contending for the faith, but it gives a warning, don't get too close or you can be dragged in. That's the same thing Paul is telling Timothy here. We want to flee evil. We don't want to get caught up in it. I remember years ago when I worked for Levi Strauss. I think I may have shared this story before. You know, I had determined when I became a Christian that I was going to make a covenant with my eyes. I was not going to look at things or experience things that I'm not supposed to. And I would make that decision up front. I wouldn't wait for it to happen. I'd gone to San Francisco. We had had some clients out there. My account was J.C. Penney. And so we had wined and dined and did those things. And we're going to walk back from the restaurant to the hotel. Now on this path in San Francisco, there's a place called the Red Light District. And I won't expound upon that. 
But I had determined, they said, this is the way we're going to go back. I said, I'm not going to walk down that street. That is fleeing, fleeing evil things. Don't put yourself in that situation. Don't say, I can handle this, because you can't. Pursue godly things. So the ethical charge then moves from what we flee to what we are to pursue. It's godliness. Here's something interesting about the Marines as well. You know they have a code of conduct? Listen to this code of conduct. Never lie, never cheat or steal. Abide by an uncompromising code of integrity or abide by an uncompromising code of integrity. Respect human dignity and respect others. Honor compels Marines to act responsibly, to fulfill our obligations, and to hold ourselves and others accountable for every action. Marines do it, and they don't have the Holy Spirit. Why don't we? Why don't we act godly? These six principles that Paul lays out here can be put into couplets. Righteousness and godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. Righteousness has to do with that conduct before others. You have been clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Show that to others. Alistair Begg tells the story of a story that Sinclair Ferguson did. So you have two Scotsmen in this. But Sinclair Ferguson, walking down the street, sees a man coming the other way. And he says, there's something about that countenance of that man, his decorum. And so as a test, as he's walking up and getting closer, Sinclair says, what is the chief end of man? And he passes the gentleman. The gentleman walking by looks over his shoulder, says the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And kept walking. When Elijah in the Old Testament was seen at a distance, a woman said, There's the man of God. Could recognize him from a distance because he had a decorum. He had an outward manifestation of an inward reality that he had the righteousness of Christ and he lived that way. That's what righteousness is. Righteousness pursues, produces godliness. Throughout all of 1 Timothy, we have heard about godliness over and over and over again. Godliness has an idea of piety. It's living in the presence of God. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment, but do you ever think about who's watching you? Forget about the people in this room. To your left and right. Do you get up in the morning and as you go about your tasks, do you think about God watching you? Might live a little bit differently if you think about that. Again, exercise your spiritual muscles here. Grow in righteousness, grow in godliness. Faith and love is the next couplet. Faith being, being faithful. 
Simplify. Always faithful. Love, having that sacrificial service towards others and Christ. Content in Him and confident in Him. Therefore, showing love for others. And then steadfast in gentleness, that last couplet here. Steadfastness has patience to persevere in times of difficulty. And then it is the gentleness which is patience and perseverance with difficult people. Difficult circumstances is steadfastness. Gentleness is with difficult people. You know, the Marines will go into battle so well disciplined, so well trained that there is there is authority and orders that come down and they are obeyed completely and fully because lives are on the line. And they go into battle with steadfastness, with confidence. They've been so well trained that they can take care of the objective that's in front of them. And they do it like in machine action. But there's also a gentleness to them when it comes to civilians. They will look out for civilians. They won't engage. Throughout global conflict, it's been well documented how Marines will look out for children. Maybe give some of their rations to them. Show acts of kindness toward them. So they're not fearful of them. They show dignity to humanity. So we're to have the same type of decorum towards others. Steadfastness and gentleness. And then we are to have the doctrinal charge. We are to have and fight the good fight. This is our engagement. Our engagement. When Marines enlist, the first thing that they do is they go to boot camp. It tests them in every aspect of their person. It tests them mentally and physically through and through. When they get through that, they're ready to do battle. As I said, when we become Christians, we shouldn't sit on the sidelines. We should engage. We should prepare ourselves through discipleship to fight the good fight of the faith. And what is that fight for? The faith. It's doctrine. It's truth. It's the Scriptures. It's the reason why we hold to sola scriptura. If the Word of God isn't true, then nothing else is true. The Gospel is not true. Jesus didn't live. But we know that that's false. We have to know the truth in order to fight for the truth. To put a stop to error. We know from 2 Timothy that we'll be getting into next week that all Scripture is breathed by God and is profitable for teaching, for correction, for reproof, and for training in righteousness that the man of God, that you and I are, will be prepared to do the works ordained for them. We need to fight for the faith. 
It is something that is passed down from generation to generation. Timothy was getting it from Paul. Paul Tim, uh, Timothy getting it from Paul. Timothy will give it on to others and it's rolled down hill from there. It's given to us. And we're to be entrusted with that. We're to fight the good fight for doctrine. And we're to do so with intensity. Intensity. He says, take hold of eternal life. Take hold of eternal life. In other words, immerse yourself completely in following Christ. Paul says in Philippians, not that I've attained it, but I press on for the upward prize for the call that is in Christ Jesus. We keep pressing on. We keep moving on. We have an intensity so that every aspect of our lives reflects Christ in what we do. You were called and you made the good confession. Now live it out. Called by God. That's an effectual call. He brought you to Himself through Christ Jesus. And you made the good confession. What is that good confession? Matthew 16, 16. Jesus asked the disciples, who do people say that I am? And then He asked, who do you say that I am? And what did Peter say? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus Christ is Lord. He is King. If that is true, it should change your life and the way you live it out in every aspect that you do, in your acts of mercy, in your witness. Live it out. Take hold of it. Let people know that you're a Christian. Not just by what you say, but what you do. Now Paul knows that's a tall order. How do I engage and how do I live intensely well here's the inspiration the next I that goes along I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things in Christ Jesus who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate gave the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free of reproof until the appearing then here that should inspire you to engage in the Christian life and to live it out intensely. And that is the very presence of God. The very presence of God in your life. You have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, but the presence of God is with you. Yesterday's message that I delivered at Annika Eve's funeral was on Psalm 139. There's three aspects of God that come fully through in that text. His omniscience, He knows all things. His omnipotence, He is all-powerful, but His omnipresence. And David essentially says this in that psalm, there's nowhere up that I can go and be out of your presence. There's nowhere down I can go and be out of your presence. There's nowhere to the east I can go and be out of your presence. There's nowhere to the west I can go and be out of your presence. He is with you. Always. 
Jesus says, even to the end of the age in Matthew 28. Do you realize that the God who created all things is with you? Does that not inspire you? It should. It should bring great confidence, great joy. And if that's not enough, Christ is coming again. That is our hope. That is the hope from yesterday that God raises the dead, that we all will be united with Christ again in renewed bodies. That's something to live for. If I told you, if I told you, you know what? You've got 10 years to live. But in 10 years, this is what you're going to have. You're going to have more wealth than you can imagine. You're going to live in a mansion. You will never have health issues ever again. And you could keep going on and on and on in the list. Maybe it's, if it's closer, you might live differently. But again, we're complacent. We're apathetic in our Christianity. Everything around us looks good. I still get a paycheck twice a month. I live in a house that's kind of under construction right now, but it's still a house. It's still good. And I get comfortable. I can entertain myself. I can turn on a ball game. But God calls us to more. Paul's calling Timothy to more. He's calling us to be mature disciples and make disciples. He's trying to inspire us to live a life that's different. To be engaged, to be intense, to be inspired. And then he moves on and he says, you know what? You're even invincible because of the presence of God. He talks about God who will display at the proper time. This is the Father. He who is blessed and only, sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To Him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Paul breaks out in doxology here. And what he's trying to tell Timothy is, listen, you're actually invincible because you are united to God through me, Jesus Christ. God is sovereign. He is King and He is Lord. Colossians says that He created all things and He is over all rulers, authorities, dominions, and powers. There was no one equal with God. There was no one above Him, beside Him. Everything is below His feet, and that is a wide chasm. Nothing even close. Psalm 50, the psalmist says, You thought I was altogether like you, speaking of God. I'm paraphrasing. I believe it's verse 21 or 22. God's not like us. He is the sovereign ruler of all things. 
And that should give us great comfort. If we're united to that one who is omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, that should reinforce our idea of invincibility. You have a lifespan that has been determined before the foundation of time. And you will live every second of that. Nothing can keep you from doing that. Because your sovereign God says, this is the day. So live life with all the gusto that you can for Christ during this time. Because in Him is mortality. In Him is life. We have life right now. Our heart beats. We breathe. But we are given immortality, the life of God, the source of life through Christ Jesus. So even when our day comes and death comes, we live again. Invincibility. God who dwells in unapproachable light, He's holy. We can't stand in His presence, but in Christ we can. The author of Hebrews says, because of our union with Christ, that we therefore can boldly approach the throne of grace. We can come into His presence, into that heavenly throne room. He is approachable for the Christian. And though no one can see Him, we see Him. Remember Philip in the Gospels? He says to Jesus, show us the Father. Jesus says, have I been with you so long that you don't understand? If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. You want to see the Father? See Jesus. You want to see Jesus? Read the Scriptures. And the Holy Spirit will put Him in vivid display in your mind and in your heart. You're invincible. You are a godly Christian, a Marine for Christ. Live out your life. Do not be fearful. On the morning of the Battle of Waterloo, the French had gathered and there was cannon fire in the distant west. An officer went up to one of the generals and said, March toward the sound of the guns. The general delayed and then decided not to do it. The battle was lost. The pulling rain was over. We have a commander-in-chief, all-powerful, He has told us what to do. Go therefore and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Why? Because all authority has been given unto Him. Teach them all I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you to the end of the age. Christian, we're to march to the sound of the guns. There are guns all over this world. There are guns in our own community. The crying out of people who are in sin and darkness. They need us to have the courage to enter into their conflict. 
to march to the sound of the guns. Paul goes on next to talk about investment. Investment. Are you invested in the kingdom of God? He begins to talk to the rich of this present age, but he's talking specifically to Christians. He talked about those last week in the first ten verses of this. Those who are greedy for gain and think that godliness is a means of that gain. In other words, I'm going to peddle religion to line my own pockets. But here he's talking to Christians. And it's interesting how he develops this line of thought. He says, charge them not to be haughty and not put their hope in the uncertainty of riches. He's telling the wealthy Christians, and that's many of us. I mean, we might think that we're living paycheck to paycheck, but when you think of us as Christians and Christians throughout the rest of the world, we're wealthy. We, we, we are Remember, Gail and I went to Jamaica. I've shared this before. Went on that trip years ago in the, in the mid-90s. And on that plane ride home, I, we, had, we saw poverty that I had never witnessed before. I'd seen pictures and seen newsreels and things like that. But to be there amongst Christians that were content that they had Christ alone. I came back Remember, cell phones came out in the, in the 90s. I had a cell phone. They didn't even have a phone in the house. They didn't have running water. They had a pump to pump water. The bathroom, I've said this before, it was an outhouse out behind the house. We're wealthy. He's speaking to them, saying, don't be haughty. Don't be arrogant. Don't think you're better than others because you have more money. There's a sense of false security there. Riches can be gone in a moment, in a heartbeat. You should live differently. In 1923, nine of the world's wealthiest men met together at the Edgewater Hotel in in Chicago. In attendance were the presidents of the world's largest steel, gas, and utility companies, the world's greatest wheat speculator, president of the New York Stock Exchange and a member of the presidential cabinet, a Wall Street tycoon and the head of the world's largest monopoly and the president of the Bank of International Settlements. That's 1923. Ten years later, ten years, a decade, each of these nine that could have purchased whatever they wanted, whenever they wanted, lost it all. Lost it all. President of the largest gas company, Howard Hubson, went insane. The president of the largest utility, Samuel Insull, died in a foreign land, penniless. The greatest wheat speculator also died insolvent. The president of the New York Stock Exchange, Richard Whitley, was sent to infamous Sing Sing prison, penniless. Albert Fall, who was a member of the presidential cabinet, was pardoned from prison so he could go home and die. 
And the list goes on. They all died penilessly, penniless. There is a warning here to rich Christians. Don't put your security in your wealth. And don't be ignorant. It doesn't mean that you cannot enjoy what you have. Not at all. Every good and perfect gift comes from God above. What He gives us, we are to enjoy. But we also have some responsibility. And here's where it gets very, very interesting. When He talks to the rich, listen to how He wants them to engage and respond. First, He tells Timothy to tell them, do good. Do good. That costs you no money whatsoever. Do good. That would be doing good works. That would be sharing your faith. Then he does a little wordplay here. Be rich in good works. You know how wealthy you are personally? Be rich in good works. Abound in good works. Don't let one good work be enough. Do more and more and more. And then be generous. Be willing to share. Be willing to store up for yourself treasure in heaven. I know a gentleman that is very successful in what he does. He was contemplating retirement. We had a conversation. You know, the Bible, you may be retired. Please don't take offense. You may be contemplating retirement. Please don't take offense. But this is the conversation that I have with this individual. Contemplating retirement. And he was able to do it. He has enough. More than enough. And I told this gentleman, I said, you know you have the gift of generosity. Has it ever crossed your mind to continue in your line of work that God richly blesses you in and continue for as long as possible to be generous to the church? That man's still working today. That man is still generous beyond what I can imagine. It comes in one hand and it goes out the other. He's like George Mueller. They just said George Mueller had millions of dollars pass in, come into one hand and it went right out the other. That's true of this gentleman. So I would ask you, consider the wealth that you have and the investment that you're putting forward. It is true that God does not need your money, but God does use money in the church to support missionaries, to support men in ministry, women in ministry, those who are on the front lines, those who are the Christian Marines doing battle. They do that as their line of work and they need to be supported for it. You have the opportunity to give to that cause. And it is a noble cause. It has an impact. It has an impact on people at the close of Timothy here. That impact is so that others can be like Timothy and take hold of what is truly life. They hear the gospel. They're changed. They're discipled. 
And they go out and they make disciples. You are the instrument to have that impact on others. You are the instrument to have an impact of a legacy of people that come to the Lord. Discipleship works this way. There's a multiplication aspect to it. You may start with one person. Read through the Bible with them one-on-one. They become a disciple. They put faith in Christ. They mature in the faith. Then you take on another one, and they take on one. And it goes on and on and on. And the church expands. All this we're to do. We're to have an impact. Timothy is given the charge again at the end about what is entrusted to him. Guard this deposit. That deposit is the gospel. Guard it. Make sure it stays true and pure. Make sure it continues to be proclaimed by you and the church. Because you are the pillar and buttress of truth. Those who it is entrusted to become stewards of it. We are to live it out in the life that we have so we can leave the Christian faith to the next generation and the next generation until Christ comes again. Well, let me close this by asking you a series of questions. Do you see yourself as a man or a woman of God? Is that your identity? Do you flee evil and ungodliness? Do you pursue holiness? That's your immediate need. Have you accepted the charge to defend the Scriptures? Defend Christ crucified, raised from the dead and ascended? Do you take hold of eternal life and do you live it out? By grace alone and Christ alone? Does the presence of God and the second coming of Christ inspire you to live the Christian life? Do you have the courage to march to the sound of the guns, the cries of help from a dying world? Do you know that you're invincible all of your days? Are you willing to invest yourself, your time, your talents, and your monies to have an impact on this world. I pray that you do. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you have given us this work in First Timothy. Oh Lord, would you give us the courage, the strength, and the obedience to answer the call, to be like Marines, Christians, willing to be your soldiers to go forth with the gospel of Jesus Christ, to have an impact on this world, all for the glory of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.